So when it comes to marriage, if we love one another, when I have that gap, there's a gap, I was expecting one thing, I got something else. In that gap, I've always got to believe the best and fill that in with the best possible explanation, the best possible situation. Welcome, thanks for joining us on the Luke Bruger Podcast. Today we're gonna to talk about five keys to an enjoyable marriage, and today is special because my wife, Beth Bruger, is joining us on the podcast today. She's gonna to be sharing as well as we talk about marriage, and, and marriage is something that is uh, has potential to be so wonderful uh, when it's done right, but also incredibly painful when done wrong. So this is something that we... We really need to make sure that we get right. Um, I've been in ministry for over 20 years now, and unfortunately, I have talked to people, sat with individuals that their their wife left them, their husband left them, people that are brokenhearted, uh, and seen a lot of the, the pain that people can experience. And a lot of times, people have this assumption that if they really love each other, then things are going to go well, it's just going to... Um, flow smoothly and they they fail to understand that there's work involved in having a successful marriage and that in marriage love is unconditional but fulfillment and joy and happiness is very conditional and so even my wife and I uh, we love each other unconditionally yes correct mm-hmm. right so that that has been a constant in our marriage unconditional love but being happy is been subject to conditions being being right um and so people make the mistake of not thinking that they need to be intentional in working on their marriage now before we jump into these five keys i wanted to to read from second thessalonians chapter 3 verse 10 it says a person who doesn't work doesn't eat and one of the things i love about the word of god is that there's so many layers to the truth that we can find in god's word so on layer one of this passage if a person doesn't work, then they don't eat. It's just talking about work ethic and that if people are going to expect to to eat, they need to be diligent and they need to work and not just expect handouts. Um, but then you can start to apply this truth to different areas. One, even just from a health perspective, that the level of work that I'm doing on any given day uh, should determine the amount of eating. A person who does no work or who does little work should do little eating. And if you do a lot of work, then you're going to need a lot of fuel. You know, that's just like good health advice keeps people from being overweight or whatever. But we can also take this and apply it to our marriages that a person who doesn't work shouldn't expect to be able to enjoy the benefits and to be nourished in their marriage. That if somebody who fails to work at their marriage, they're not going to be able to to enjoy it. So, so we need to be intentional and work and apply these keys to our to our marriage. So, so the first one I want to talk about is is this: don't withhold anything that you're willing to freely give. Don't withhold anything that you're willing to freely give. Second Corinthians chapter nine verse seven in the Amplified says this. Let each one give thoughtfully and with purpose, just as he has decided in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver and delights in the one whose heart is in his gift. So in context, this verse is talking about people who give financially to support the work of the ministry. That's what he's talking about. 
but there's also a principle that just applies to giving in any context and giving is a huge part of a successful marriage because giving is part of loving someone. When you love someone, giving is part of that. So we can apply a principle where he's talking about giving to the church, apply it to marriage. And he says when we're giving, we, we should not give grudgingly. That when we give, don't let it be done in a way that lets it be known that you don't want to do the giving that you're, you're doing. That that you can give things in a way that reveals you're not happy about giving what you're giving, and that's giving grudgingly. And the heart of giving is to bless the one that you're giving to. <clears throat> but you can give in a way um, that removes the enjoyment of the gift that that you're giving, right? So if, if I were going to make you dinner, I'm going to cook you a steak, I can do it in a way the way I present it can make it so you, you can't enjoy the thing that I've given you. So if I cook you a meal and then I, I spit on it and give it to you, well, the way that I've presented it, I've really ruined your ability to enjoy the gift. And sometimes in marriage, we can give things in a way. The giving should be about the person that you're giving to. But you can give so that you get credit for giving and you've also removed the enjoyment that they're they're not able to enjoy the gift that's that's being given. And just like I said, the Bible has truth that can be uh, has layers of application. Sin can work similar. That there, sin starts to compound itself, and there's layers. So if I give in a, in a way that's grudging, in a way that lets it be known I'm not enjoying giving, and I remove your ability to enjoy the thing that I'm giving, not only have I sinned because I'm giving grudgingly. But I'm starting to compound that because now I'm being a poor steward as well. And the Bible tells me not to be a, a poor steward. So if I have something I can give that would be valuable to you, but the way that I handle it, I strip away the value in the way that I present it. Now, now I'm being a good steward. So just a simple example. Let's say my wife, she one of her love languages is uh, words of affirmation. So I'm going to encourage her. She, she would appreciate if I told her that she looks nice or I would encourage her. And so I can say those words. I have the ability to, I have something valuable. If I told her, no, you look beautiful. You look so nice in that outfit. You know you're really pretty. I, I just think you're so, you're, you're such a, a beautiful person and you're, you're really good at that. I, I can add value with my words. But if I do it in a way, um, I know she wants me to tell her that she looks pretty. Oh, you, you look really nice in that. Is that what you want to hear me say? Fine, I, you, you look pretty there. Now you're happy? I can do it in a way that I've taken those words that could have value and I've stripped away the value that, that that's not what she wants to hear. If I say it like that, you know what, just forget it. I, it's not valuable to her, so now I'm a poor steward. So he says, when we give, don't give grudgingly. In the first part of that verse, he says, let each one give. <clears throat> let each one give. God loves a cheerful giver. So it's not just a willingness to give. He's talking about actually giving. Giving is an act. Giving is a verb. Not just I'm willing to give, but that I actually give. A lot of times people will have a willingness, but if I'm, if I'm willing, that's nice, but if I never actually give, it doesn't do her any good. And the, the reason that I'm, uh, I'm saying that with this one is because I've known people and I've talked with people that have gone through divorces, and as they talk about the divorce they went through, why their spouse left them, they're brokenhearted, they'll, they'll talk about the reason that their marriage fell apart and then say that that reason was something that all along they were, they were willing 
to do. So for, for example, that, you know, she left me um, because she said I'd never spend time with her. My, my wife left me because I, I, she said I'd never encourage her. I'd never just talk to her. And you know what? I, I would have been, I would have done that. I was willing to do that. Or, you know, he, my husband left me because he said I, I, never, I never showed him respect. Or I, I was never affectionate with him. I, I was willing to be affectionate. Well, that willingness never did that person any good. So it's great that they were willing, but that person didn't benefit. And so I'm not, I'm not defending anyone leaving their spouse under any conditions. But just pointing out, you're, just being willing, that person doesn't benefit. So don't withhold what you are willing to, to freely give. Sometimes people have a willingness, but they're too, too lazy or too selfish to actually serve and be a blessing to their, to their spouse. And their, their marriage can fall apart when all along it's something that they were, they were, willing, they were willing to do. That if she really wanted me to talk more, I would talk more. Well, then, then talk more. If she really wanted me to spend more time, then, then I would. Then go ahead and do it. If he, if it was really that important that I was affectionate with him, I would be more affectionate. Then just go ahead and do it. This, this whole relationship, marriages are voluntary. You decide to get into them, and you, you can voluntarily walk away. So if that person, if you're married to that person, why not make it so that you are a blessing to them? That it's awesome to be married to you. That you, the things you know they would like for you to do, if you're willing to do it, just go ahead and do it. Don't withhold what you're willing to freely give. So again, giving is part of loving. So if you aren't giving, otherwise if you are withholding, then you're not you're not loving. And so if I want to love more, if you want to love more, man, I want to love my spouse more. You know what you need to do? You need to give more. If you think, man, I want to love better, then you know what you can do to love better? you can give better. If I want to love my wife more and I want to love her better, then I need to give more and I need, I need to give better. So, so think about this. What is something you know would be a blessing to your spouse? And when it comes down to it, ultimately you're willing to do that, but for whatever reason you're withholding. What's something you're withholding that you're willing to freely give and make a decision? You know, from now on, I'm, I'm not going to withhold that. I'm going to make it awesome to be married to me. So the first key for an enjoyable marriage is don't withhold anything that you are willing to freely give. Key number two. Key number two is have a grateful heart. Um, so there's been times in my life when I've been grateful and thankful for something. You know, you really look forward to it and you think about it all the time and you're just so thankful for that thing. But over time, the thankfulness and the gratefulness fades away. Um, I've had a pair of patent leather shoes when I was, I don't know, maybe four or five that I loved so much that I would sleep with them on my pillow with me at night. Um, I was so thankful that I had those shoes. I loved them so much. But um, now I never, ever think about those shoes anymore. I'm not thankful for them at all anymore. Um, like also getting my driver's license. I was really excited about that. Um, it was on my mind all the time. I was just really thankful to be able to have freedom and to drive. And, um, when I was driving here today, I never thought about it. I have lost that thankfulness for my driver's license. Um, and probably you've had times like that where you have been thankful for something, been looking forward to it, been excited about it. Maybe it's a new job or, a new pair of shoes or a new car, but over time that excitement has faded and you're, you're not thankful for it anymore. Um, 
the same thing, since we're talking about marriage, it goes for marriage as well. I'm sure uh, the person that you're married to now, when you first met them, you were very thankful for them. You were so excited. They were always on your mind. Um, every little thing about them was wonderful, and you just thought so highly of them. But over time, um, the thankfulness for that fades away, and now it's like you don't care. It's, you're indifferent to that person. Um, you don't even think about it. You're just like, oh, there, there he is. Uh, I guess he's still here, you know. It's just not, um, you're just not interested like you used to be. First Thessalonians 5.18 says, And everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So it, this verse tells us that we're supposed to give thanks in everything, and I know that that includes marriage. Um, Proverbs 15.15 says, All the days of the oppressed are bad, but he who has a grateful heart has a continual feast. Let me repeat that. It says, but he who has a grateful heart has a continual feast. So um, having a grateful heart changes things. Um, it has the ability to take an empty table and to make it into one that's full. So if you think of a Thanksgiving table, you're sitting in front of it and it's full of all the, all the wonderful food, the turkey, the mashed potatoes, the stuffing, the pie, everything wonderful that you can think of. And you're just sitting there and you're able to eat and eat and eat until you're full. But um, it says it's a continual feast, which shows me the picture of also it's not just full but that there's somebody that's continually bringing more food and more food and you're just eating and eating um, so you're all, always able to stay full and you're staying strengthened and nourished and satisfied but when you stop being thankful the same uh, the opposite would happen that the table would stop being full and you would become empty and um, not nourished you would be weak um, that's also what happens in marriage. You're thankful for each other and your marriage is strong. But when you stop being thankful, then your marriage is not strong anymore. It becomes weak. Um, I read a study in, from 2008 that was talking about the brain that said when someone is thinking of something for which they are grateful, different parts of your brain light up. You start producing serotonin, which is a neurotransmitter that plays a huge role in many body functions, including your mood your sleep, your digestion, and your sexual function. Um, it said that gratitude activates the brainstem to produce dopamine, which is the brain's pleasure chemical. So all those good things that happened to you that the study told us about are when you're grateful. So you're spiritually and physically changed. Um, so like the more uh, you're grateful, the better you feel, and the better you feel the more grateful you are and it just keeps um, adding up and so if your spouse is also being grateful then the same thing is happening to them so you're both just being more grateful and feeling better and being grateful and feeling better and it's just it just keeps um, getting better <clears throat> so um, being thankful is not just a nice thing to do or the right thing to do but it's actually beneficial to you and it's good for you it's actually life-changing <clears throat> so what can you do to be more thankful? Psalm 9, 1 and 2 says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. So in the same way that we um, give thanks to the Lord by recounting his wonderful deeds, we could do the same thing for our spouse. So we could stop and think about all the good things about them. Also, the Bible says in Revelation to go back to your first love. So I know in the beginning when you first are falling in love with someone, 
everything they do is wonderful. They're, they're trying to do nice things for you. You're appreciating the things that they're doing. So you could go back and think about those things that you fell in love with and um, <clears throat> remember those and stir up thankfulness in your heart. Um, because this is the person that God gave you that you're with for a lifetime. Um, it's such a wonderful blessing and um, it's something to be thankful for. So write down some things that you're thankful for and make sure you think about them, but you also tell your spouse and that gratefulness is what's going to produce that continual feast. That was good. Can you, can you read that verse one more time? Um, uh, the one about the thank, thankful heart. Yes. It's Proverbs fifteen fifteen. It says all the days of the oppressed are bad, but he who has a grateful heart has a continual feast. Oh, that's super good. Yeah, so in marriage where people are frustrated, don't feel like they're getting anything out of their marriage, how much of that is due to them just not being thankful? If a thankful heart produces a, a continual feast, that how, how important Thanksgiving is. And people do have a tendency to focus on the negative. So I think that's a super good step. To like write down things that you're thankful for about your spouse. Make yourself think of what were the top five things, top ten things that I'm thankful for. Um, when, when I have people come and they're frustrated in their marriage, I just met with someone this week. I sat with them for two hours. And they, they just focus on he doesn't do this, she doesn't do that. I don't like what... If you just... What, what are you thankful for? And start to focus on those things. Yeah, it, turn, it transforms it into a, a continual feast. Super good. All right, so there's the first two. One, don't withhold anything that you are willing to freely give. Number two again. Have a grateful heart. Have a grateful heart. It kind of takes us right into the, the third one I, I wanted to talk about, and that is to always believe the best. Always believe the best. I want to read from James chapter 4, first couple verses. It says this, What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and you kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. So he, he's talking about all quarrels, all kinds of strife, worldwide wars, and all of those kinds of things. But we can also apply it to strife and fights and dissatisfaction, frustration that happens in marriage. And he says that the root of it, the cause, is there's something you want and you're not getting what you want. You're getting, you're getting something else. So if we apply that to expectations, you're expecting one thing but you get another thing. And when you don't get what you want, which is what he's talking about, when you don't get what you want, that's where all fights, all, all uh, strife and quarreling come from. So in marriage, we've got a certain set of expectations. And when you, when you want something and get something else, here's the way our minds work all the time. This is in every situation, but also in marriage. When, when you want something, when you have got a certain expectation, and then reality is different than that expectation. Our minds work to fill in that to fill in that gap. So if you can imagine having a gap between reality and expectations, there's space in between there. Uh, I was expecting this. I got this. I, I've got I've got to fill in the difference between the two. Your mind it's just wired to to it. It can't just have a vacuum. If I go home after work and I expect my wife to be at the house and she's not there. 
she just doesn't cease to exist in my mind. I've got to explain, I, where, where is she? I wonder where she is. Did she go get coffee with a friend? Is she at the grocery store? Is she, is she taking one of our kids someplace? It's not just like, huh, my wife doesn't exist anymore. When, when you're expecting something, something else happens, you have to explain it uh, to yourself. And this can either be something that strengthens your marriage, strengthens a relationship, or it can absolutely destroy the marriage. How do I fill in the gap? When, when I'm expecting one thing, I get something else, what do I put in that gap? In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7, it's talking about, it's the love chapter, it's describing the characteristics of love. Verse 7, it says that love believes all things. So if I love my wife, which I do, it says love believes all things. That doesn't mean I just believe everything. You could tell me anything about her and, and I would believe it. Hey, did you hear Beth... Uh, just released a rap album. And oh yeah, I, I, I believe that. Hey, did you hear Beth just moved to Mexico? I, I believe that. No, it's not saying you're naive and gullible and just believe anything. If I love her, then I believe not everything about her. I believe the best about her. So when it comes to marriage, if we love one another, when I have that gap, there's a gap. I was expecting one thing. I got something else. In that gap, I've always got to believe the best and Fill that in with the best possible explanation, the best possible situation. And I talk about this all the time. I talk about it a lot because it's huge. It's foundational. But I also like to talk about it a lot because our natural tendency is to do the opposite. Most people's natural tendency is when I, I was expecting this, I didn't get that, I got something else, is that they fill in the gap with something negative, uh, often like the worst possible scenario. And there's a picture in the Bible of how this can affect a relationship in the book of Exodus between the relationship between the Israelites and God when he took them out of Egypt and he was taking them to the promised land. That relationship disintegrated. There was an entire generation that didn't get to experience what God had for them. And the, the reason is what we're talking about. They came through the Red Sea. They celebrate on the other side. They're playing tambourines. Miriam uh, writes a song. They're dancing around. The horse and the rider thrown into the sea. And just a few pages later, they start to complain. They start to talk about how there's not enough food. There's not enough water. They were expecting God's taken us to the promised land. He's taken us to a land flowing with milk and honey. But when they didn't leave Egypt and step right into paradise, they were expecting one thing, but they got something else. How they chose to manage that gap was either going to make or break their relationship with God. And they chose to believe the worst. That, hey, we're not, we're not in a land flowing with milk and honey. Instead, it's, it's dry. It's difficult. Then God tricked us. He brought us out here to die. They even said stuff like that. You read through uh, the book of Exodus. Weren't there enough graves back in, in Egypt? We used to have meat. We used to have plenty to eat. We should have stayed there. Why would you bring us out here just to, to watch us die? They thought the worst about God. If they would have decided it, we're not getting what we expect, but instead we're going to fill that in with the best. God, we expected a land flowing with milk and honey. Instead, we're, we're still in a wilderness where fruit food is scarce. It's hard to find water, but... I don't understand why we're here, but I trust your heart and I know that you're faithful and I know that you're good and I know that you're loving and I know that you're kind. And if where, where you're taking us is worth taking us through this barren wilderness, then it must be wonderful. If they would have trusted the heart of God and when they didn't understand and they had that gap, if they would have filled it in with the best, 
that would have caused that relationship with the Lord to grow sweeter and stronger instead of causing the foundation to disintegrate. So applying that to marriage, there's going to be lots of situations in our marriages where we're expecting something and we get something less than, and we've got to explain that you're, you're expecting to come home every night from work and your, your wife has dinner ready and, and she doesn't. What's that mean? How do you explain that? It's because she's lazy. She's no good. You should have married somebody else. Your mom was right about her. She's not as good as some. Or dinner's not ready because she was probably spending time with the kids. She's probably working on something else. You, you trust her heart. You always give the best possible explanation. You thought the laundry would always be done. You thought you'd be having sex three times a day. You thought you, you know, he'd bring you flowers every day. You thought you'd just be laying around writing poems, and, and, and it's not like that. How, how do you explain it to yourself? Is it because you married the wrong person, that person's no good, they're terrible, or is there, there another explanation? He didn't come home from work on time. It's because he's, he's probably cheating on me, or I trust his heart. He's, he's probably working hard and trying to do something nice for our family. When there's that gap, you've got to train yourself to always believe the best and not follow a, a typical tendency to fill that gap in with something negative. Now, having said that, I'm not saying you never have conversations. That if I, if she expects me home at six o'clock every evening and I never get home until midnight and that happens night after night after night, she's not just going to believe the best and just let it slide. There's going to be times where you have conversations, but in the meantime, you believe the best. And when you have conversations, hey, I, you said you'd be home at six. You never get home until midnight. I'm, I'm having a hard time filling in that gap with the best. Help me. What, what do I put here? Explain why, why this is happening. You have conversations. This is important because it strengthens a marriage, but also when you fill that in with negative, it's absolute poison to a marriage. It, it creates a hostile environment where people become defensive and every little move, every time somebody does something, they attack one another, people are vulnerable. It, it, it ruins trust when you know that you, you just keep assuming the worst. I, I want to read a verse from Psalm 48, verse 12. This is the amplified version. It says, Walk about Zion and go round about her, number her towers, her lofty and noble deeds of past days, consider well her ramparts, Go through her palaces and citadels that you may tell the next generation and cease recalling disappointments. So this is talking about Jerusalem, Zion, which is a parallel of the church in the new covenant. And it says, go around, look at her, look at what's good, look what you can appreciate, notice what is admirable about her. And then it says, cease recalling her disappointments. The things that are negative, the things that you don't like, quit, quit focusing on that and focus on the good things. Now, just using this example with the church, there's a lot of people that focus on negative things in the church, the body of Christ, that they don't like church, they don't go to church because it's a bunch of hypocrites. There was someone that mishandled money that they heard about one time, um, that this once happened, and they just focus on the negative. And when you do that, when people do that, they miss out on all of the wonderful things about being a part of the church. The, the church that I'm a part of, it's not perfect, but man, it's it's beautiful, and there's so many wonderful things about being a part of the church. Now, if I were just to focus on the negative things and become bitter, I would miss out on all, all the wonderful aspects of getting to be a part of a family like this. And the, this is talking about the bride of Christ. We can apply that to our spouses. Stop focusing on the negative and don't allow past disappointments 
to cause you to always justify filling in that gap with negative. So always believe the best. When, when reality doesn't meet your expectation, choose to explain it to yourself in the best possible terms. Believe the best about your spouse. Anything that you would add to that? Nope. Oh. <laughs> All right, so number one, key number one. Don't withhold what you're willing to freely give. Key number two. Have a grateful heart. Have a grateful heart. Key number three, always believe the best. Number four. Appreciate differences. So this is going along with what you are saying. Um, we are going to have unmet expectations in our marriages because we are different people. Just as men and women are inherently different, so uh, we have different personalities and temperaments and things like that. Um, so, for example, I'm more emotional and he's more stable. Um, I'm always cold. He's hot. I like to relax. He likes to be on the go. I like to be inside. He likes to be outside and so on and so forth. The list goes on. Um, we can probably all relate to that sort of thing. Um, I'm sure you all have differences of your own. Um, but a lot of the times when we see differences... Instead of um, accepting them, we tend to reject the differences and end up hurting each other. Um, we sometimes might even demand that the other person become like us. Um, so we all have differences, but we need to learn to not reject those differences and not even just tolerate them, but to celebrate them. To see that we have differences and appreciate the differences. Um, like a football team, a good team is not made up of people that all do the same things. Not everyone is a quarterback. Everyone has a different role to play, and it works best when we do our different roles um, working together. <clears throat> um, God has put us together with just the right person, and it's probably someone who's not like you. Um, and that's good, because that person can supply what you're lacking. Um, and you are lacking, but that's not a bad thing, because we all have different strengths and weaknesses, and we each need help, and that's okay. Because in Genesis 2, it says that the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So he made a helper because we all need help. We're different people. We have different strengths and weaknesses. He made a helper, and it's you. He made you to be a helper for your spouse. Um, it's purposeful that you're different. You can help each other where you need it. Um, so... Along with that, don't reject that person's help. When they're trying to help you, don't try to act like you have it all together and that you don't need help. It's okay to need help. It's okay to be different. God made someone just for you to help you with what you need help with. So also, when you go to ask for help, we need to make a, um, an environment where you don't feel rejected when you're asking for help or trying to be helpful. So... Um, we just need to see each other's differences and learn to celebrate them and be thankful that you have someone who is able to help you where you need help. Um, that's all. <clears throat> it's good. You know, it's, it is interesting when God made a helper just right, like just right, that it was somebody completely different, like created a new, a new sex, a new species, the first woman, very, very different because it's just right to help him um, instead of just making another person the same. And so just applying it, it's simple, but applying mm -hmm. it to marriage, the, the reason that you're different is because I need someone that's different. And so to, yeah, appreciate those. That's good. So I appreciate 
each other's differences. Um, with this last one, I want to I want to change gears just a, a little bit, um, and just a, approach this fifth one differently. Uh, I've I've been to like services that were about marriage or listened to marriage teachings. I've read books on marriage, and sometimes I've come away from teachings or, or reading stuff about marriage, and while I see all the principles or I hear the people talk about how they're handling things in their marriage and it's wonderful, I can end up being discouraged sometimes because I end up thinking about how I'm not the way that I should be. And that's awesome that they're doing that, but I just feel like I'm, I'm so far I'm so far behind and they've got all these principles active. Um, and so sometimes it, it can end up being frustrating that you're not where you want to be. Um, and principles are great. We need principles. Uh, and keys and things like that. But marriage isn't just principles. Life isn't just principles. And so sometimes there needs to be some development that happens or healing that happens in in order to really be able to apply principles and to take certain steps and to, to have those, those keys that make things work properly. So just as an example, if I said, hey, I'm going to share five principles to help help you really know how to read your Bible and get the most out of it. That we're going to five principles for effective Bible study and, and reading the Bible. That might be wonderful, and those could be potentially very helpful principles, but if you don't know how to read, then there, there's some key development that needs to happen in order for you to ever even be able to use the principles that I want to share. And so you could listen to people talk about the principles of proper Bible reading on and on and on, and it really just causes frustration because you have failed to develop or just haven't developed yet in a way that will allow you to make use of those principles. Or if I said, hey, let's talk about some key principles in in training so that you can run your, your best marathon ever. Again, you might say, well, that, that sounds great. I'd love to run uh, my first marathon or my best marathon. But right now I'm dealing with two broken legs. So in that case, you know, all those principles might sound wonderful, but you've got some healing that needs to take place before you can ever make use, make use of the principles. And sometimes that applies to marriage, that because there needs to be a healing or there needs to be some key development that happens before we can make use of, of principles that we're hearing and learning about. And until that happens, principles can just be a source of frustration and aggravation and cause you to be... Uh, disappointed instead of strengthened. And so I, I want to take a look at a story from John chapter 9. John chapter 9, starting in verse 1, <clears throat> says this, As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, Why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so that the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned us by the one who sent us. The night is coming, and then no one can work. But while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. Then he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and spread the mud over the man's, over the man's eyes. This is an interesting story because Jesus goes about healing this guy different than he heals other people. That he spits on the ground, he makes some mud, and he smears it on him. Because he heals other blind people. Blind Bartimaeus, where he's you know calling out, have mercy on me. Uh, he heals other blind people, but not in this fashion. 
John G. Lake says, or said, that Jesus healed this man this way because Jesus was a fundamentalist. And what he meant by that was that when God created man, he created him with the, the clay, with the dirt of the ground. He, he molded him and he breathed life into him. And so this isn't just a healing. This guy was, didn't see fine for uh, most of his life and then somebody came and poked him in the eyes and now, now he's blind. And so it's not the result of an injury or it's not the result of disease or sickness that he got you know, a, a super bad case of pink eye or something and now, and now he's, he's blind. <laughs> Um, I don't think pink eye really causes blindness, but you, you get the point. So this isn't just like a healing uh, because of injury or disease. This is a healing that's different. This is a healing because there was a, a failure of development or something just never developed that should have de developed. It says that he was born blind. So in his mother's womb, when that development should have been happening, something went wrong or something just failed to take place. And Jesus is performing a miracle to make up for that failure of development and get this guy right back to where it would be like he properly developed. So applying this to our marriages. In our marriages, or just as men and women, sometimes there are things that don't work properly because we've we failed to develop. God can do a creative miracle like in this, in this story where he gets us back up to speed and able to function and able to put these principles uh, in into work in our marriage, but we, there's things that need to develop before we can even get to that point. So maybe in a marriage, people have never really developed the ability to have conversations and just talk with one another. Or maybe they've never developed the ability to, to talk about money. And every time they talk about money, it's, it's a disaster. Or for a man, maybe he never developed the ability to be a spiritual leader and to lead his family, to lead his wife. He never saw it modeled or he saw it modeled in a, in a bad way. And so there's been a failure, a failure of development so that he can, God, God can do a miracle to make up for that lack of development and and get us to where we're able to function properly. Because God, God doesn't want us, if there has been a failure of development or an injury in some way that's, that's kept us from functioning properly as husband and wife, God doesn't want it. So we're just, well, now we're out of luck. And now we just have to, uh, using that example, a man who never saw what it's like to be a godly husband and a godly father, there's been a failure of development. Does that mean he's just out of luck for the rest of his life? God, God can do something to bring that person up to speed in a moment, just like this man, a miracle, a creative miracle, a miracle of development. Because God cares about marriage. God cares about your marriage. You know, marriage is important to God. God created the marriage covenant but before he created the church before the nation of Israel, before ministry gifts, before the Ten Commandments, before all, all kinds of things, early on, God created the marriage covenant. And even in the, the ministry of Jesus, the first miracle that Jesus ever did was at the, at the wedding uh, at Cana. And what was that miracle? He turned water into wine. That, that's not the way that wine's typically developed. You don't make wine in an instant. What, how do you? It takes time. I'm not like an expert in making wine by, by any means, but I do understand it, there, there's time involved. There's a, a development process that he completely skipped and he changed things. He changed that water from one situation. It was one way and he made it, 
He made it a complete different way. And he did it in the context of a marriage because marriage matters to God. And God, within the context of a marriage, can do a miracle where he changes things that they used to be this way and now they are completely different. And it can be a, a miracle of development, just like we see in John chapter 9, just like at the wedding feast at Cana, where it should have taken time in a developmental process. It happens it happens in a moment. And I'm not saying that there's not work. It's what we started off saying. There's work involved in a marriage. So we don't just rely on miracles. I'm, I'm going to be a deadbeat husband and just rely on miracles. I'm saying if there's needs to be development or there needs to be a, a healing to get us up to the point where I can start to put these principles and keys into practice, that, that God can do that. And we'll pray here in just a moment and believe if that's your situation, God can do a miracle of development. But I want to read one more verse and then we'll pray. The next verse, verse 7 from John chapter 9 says this, He told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means sent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. Jesus smears mud on this guy's face, puts mud on his eyes, and then he tells him, go to this certain place, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash that mud off your face. I don't have a ton of experience with blind people. I do have one, uh, one encounter uh, that I think applies here. When I was, we lived in a, in a different state and I was working secularly and I was working in a, in a downtown area and I came out of a big office building one day and in the parking lot, I noticed a man who was uh, apparently blind. He had the dark sunglasses on and the, the blind stick. What's that called? I want to say a seeing eye stick, but it's, <laughs> it's a seeing eye dog. I don't know what the stick is, but you know the stick that blind people have. And he's, um, he's on the sidewalk. There's a busy road on one side, and then the sidewalk kind of turns where you can pull into this parking lot. And it's just kind of like a little concrete peninsula where the, the sidewalk is just kind of rounded off. And he's using this stick to feel the edge of the curb, and it's rounded off. So he, as he's feeling it, he's turning, it turns him around. But on the other, on one side of him, there's a busy road, so he hears cars. So he turns around again. There's cars around him in the parking lot he can hear, and he's just feeling that rounded edge. He's just turning around and around and around. And I can tell by his body language and just watching him for a moment, he's getting exasperated. There's a Greyhound bus station across the street. And so I'm just putting the pieces together. Apparently, he just got off the bus. He looks like a homeless man. He's a big, burly guy, big beard. He's wearing like a military fatigue uh, jacket. He's got a duffel bag over his arm, again, the, the dark sunglasses. And he, he's just going around and around, holding his hands up in the air. And so I watch him. And I think, I, I, can't, I can't just watch this blind guy get frustrated. I can tell what's happening here. He can't figure, what's going, figure out what's going on. So I walk over to him and I, and I just say, hey, can I help you? Um, is there anything I can do for you? And he says, well, yeah, I, I want something to eat and I need to get to a restaurant. Um, if you could just help me find a restaurant where I can like sit down and eat. I need a place where they'll like bring the food to my table because he's blind. He can't like, you know, go to McDonald's and carry his tray to a table. He said, if you could help me find a restaurant like that, I, that I would appreciate that. So I said, okay, I've, I've never helped a blind person get from one place to another before. So I don't know if he's just going to like, you know, put his hand out on my shoulder or we're just going to hold hands or what. So I said, yeah, I'll, I'll get you to a restaurant. What do I need to do? And he just kind of said, said, come here. 
And when he could feel me, he like, he grabbed a hold of my arm and he didn't just like hold my elbow. He got his arm, wrapped him around my arm and just like pulled me in tight. This is a big burly guy. He's a stranger. I'm super uncomfortable because it's just like our bodies are tight up against each other and he has got a solid grip on me. It's uncomfortable, one, because it's just a man holding my body close to his body. But it's also uncomfortable because, you know, he's just this big guy that I, I don't, I, he's a total stranger. Um, and so I'm uncomfortable. I'm a little bit on edge and we start, we start walking. We get about three quarters away from the, uh, three quarters away across the parking lot. And he just turns his head towards me and he says, let's stop here for tea if you're crazy, Mr. Hazy. And it like, it freaked me out. I was already uncomfortable. And it was just like, I was like, let go of me, let go of me. I just stop. We can't do this anymore. Get away from me. And so I felt bad. He just, it like scared me. It was very weird. That he, the way that he said it. I don't know if he was trying to be funny. I don't know if that's like blind people humor or what. I didn't find it funny. It freaked me out. So I said, okay, uh, from now on, you're just going to have to follow my voice. Like I keep coming forward, forward. I'm trying to lead him like with verbal cues. Finally, there's another stranger coming by. And I said, Hey, can you help this gentleman find a restaurant? And I walked away and I was like out of that situation. So I shared all that to share this. When you're leading a blind person, it's like, you don't just tell someone, I, I didn't just say, yeah, there's, there's a Denny's uh, two blocks down. Denny's is a great place. You can sit at the table and they'll bring you food at Denny's. I, I couldn't just tell him that. He needed to be led. He needed to be guided to that point. But in this story with this blind man, Jesus doesn't wrap his arm around. He's not given voice cues, none of that stuff. He just says, hey, go, go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. He treats this man like a person that can see. And this man doesn't say, I can't, I'm blind. Uh, will you lead me? Will you guide me? It says that he went, he found the pool of Siloam, and he washed in it, and he could see. The way that this man received the ability to see was by functioning, he was acting like somebody who could see. A key of receiving a miracle of development like this is one, we're going to pray. Jesus laid hands on him, put that clay on his, on his eyes, but then Jesus gave him instructions to begin functioning like someone who could do what they couldn't previously do. So in your situation, if you're a man who struggles to, to lead his family and to pray with his family or lead his family in devotions or open the Bible and say, hey, we're going to read a few verses and talk about it. I've never, I've never been able to do that. I don't know how to do it. We're going to pray and believe that that miracle of development happens. But the way that it's actualized is by you starting to take steps like a man who knows how to spiritually lead his family. If you've never been able to show affection properly, if you've never been able to have conversations about certain things, if you've never been able to connect in some way with your spouse. We're going to believe that whatever needs to be healed is healed. Whatever needs to be developed, there's a, a, a creative miracle that happens in you, in your marriage. But then the next step is for you to begin to function like someone who's able to function the way that they need to function. So we're going to pray and believe that. Before I do, is there anything that you would add to that? I think I'll start calling you Mr. Hazy. Mr. Hazy. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the one thing to add. Okay. Yes. Anything else? No. Okay. All right. Key number one. Don't withhold what you're willing to freely. If you're willing to freely give it, then just give it. Don't settle for I'm willing. Your willingness doesn't do anyone any good until you actually give what it is that you're willing to give. Don't withhold what you're willing to freely give. Number two. 
Have a grateful heart. Have a grateful heart. Be thankful. It turns, turns things into a continual feast, the Bible says. Number three is always believe the best. When you've got, I'm not sure about this gap. I, I don't know why he did that. I don't know why she said that. Why would he do something like that? Until you have a chance to figure it out, always choose to fill in that gap. Believe the best. What's the best possible scenario? Believe the best about your spouse. Number Number four. Appreciate differences. Appreciate differences. Your husband, your wife, they are different from you. Don't let that be something that aggravates you. Mm-hmm. Celebrate it. Appreciate it. That's what you need. You need someone different. And the fifth thing that we talked about is allowing God to do a creative miracle or a healing in you or in your marriage so that you can actually apply these principles. Principles, again, those examples, if, if you don't know how to read, principles of the proper way to study or read a book don't do you any good. There needs to be development that happens, and then you can make use of them. So we're going to pray right now and believe that that happens, and then your job is to begin to function like someone who can function in that role. Jesus treated that man, gave him directions like a man that could see, and that's how that man was able to enjoy the results of what Jesus did for him. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for each person listening or each person watching. I pray for their marriage. God, in anywhere where there needs to be development, Anywhere where there needs to be healing, let let a supernatural miracle of development happen in their marriage now, in Jesus' name, that each husband, Father, where they haven't had good examples, where they failed to develop themselves, where there's been uh, inadequate investment in that man or in that woman, Father, do something in them by your Holy Spirit now that brings them up to speed. Just like this man in John chapter 9, just like the wedding feast at Cana, something that should take a long time, something that failed to develop, development got, got off the rails somehow. Father, put them back on track now in Jesus' name. Father, where there needs to be healing from past relationships, past situations, things that happened to them, things that were done by them, whatever it is that's caused a wound that's kept them from moving forward, I speak healing in Jesus' name. Be healed in your mind. Be healed in your emotions. Be healed in your soul, in your spirit. Be healed in that relationship in Jesus' name. The ability to let things go. The ability to, to forgive. Receive it now in Jesus' name. Father, I pray for a grace on each husband, on each wife. Lord, to begin to function like a healthy man of God, like a healthy woman of God. Husbands loving their wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wives submitting and honoring their husband, respecting their husband like the church is subject to Christ. I plead the blood of Jesus over every household, over every marriage. I call them blessed, healthy, strong, whole in Jesus' mighty name. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you guys for joining us. See you next time on the Luke Burger Podcast.